Mortality rates in the United States are low. That needs a bit of unpacking. What's a maternal mortality? What's a rate? Low compared to what or for whom? A pregnancy-related mortality, that's a death during pregnancy or within one year of the end of pregnancy, from a pregnancy complication, a chain of events initiated by pregnancy, or the aggravation of an unrelated condition by the physiologic effects of pregnancy. Oh my God, what a statement. So physiological means related to a way the body functions, like blood pressure. So that's pregnancy-related mortality, deaths during pregnancy, or within one year of the end of pregnancy. Pregnancy-related death is used by the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, to report U.S. trends. This measure is typically reported as a ratio per 100,000 live births. So, what do we know? The most recent U.S. maternal mortality rate of 17.4 per 100,000 pregnancies represents approximately 660 maternal deaths in 2018. Is this a low number? 17.4 per 100,000? It ranks last overall among industrialized countries. New Zealand is the lowest at 1.7, the United Kingdom is 6.5, and Canada 8.6 per 100,000. The United States is 17.4. The maternal death rate for black women, 37.1 per 100,000 pregnancies, is two and a half times the ratio for white women, which is 14.7 and three times the ratio for Hispanic women, which is 11.8. A black mother with a college education is at 60% greater risk for a maternal death than a white or Hispanic woman with less than a high school education. Why is this? Aren't we the best? Well, I guess not. On a call about computerized decision support, I heard Dr. Julia Skapik, who's the medical director for the National Association of Community Health Centers, NACH, N-A-C-H-C, says that community health primary care physicians had great difficulty obtaining information about pregnancy and hospital births from electronic health records. I stopped in my tracks. How could this be? Almost 4 million births occur every year. It's not a rare disease. It's predictable. Everywhere, all the time. This is a problem that should have been solved long ago. So as you know, I'm also on the PCORI Board of Governors. PCORI, that's the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, Its legislative mandate requires that PCORI fund research into maternal mortality and morbidity. Morbidity is illness. I'm curious. I need to learn more. Dr. Skapik suggested I meet Dr. Lisa Massenter 
and Dr. Michelle Witt. Welcome to Health Hats, the podcast. I'm Danny Van Leeuwen, a two-legged cisgender old white man of privilege who knows a little about a lot of health care and a lot about very little. We will listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome circus of health care. Let's make some sense of all of this. Thank you for um, taking the time. I'm so curious. So, Michelle, you want to start? No, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I want you to start. No, I don't have much to say about myself. Well, just Um, whatever. No, well, um, I could do my little spiel of I'm Michelle Witt. I am a clinical informaticist for OCHIN. I am a clinical informaticist. I'm I'm also an OBGYN by training, so I take care of patients. And I don't know. What else do I need to say about myself? Is that enough? What do you do for fun? Oh, what do I do for fun? Not much right now. It's the pandemic. But typically, I, I do enjoy traveling, but I like to I like really do zip lining. I read quite a bit. And I I do a lot of activities that are more family-oriented around my kids. Okay. And Lisa? Hi. Michelle's a tough act to follow. I also am clinically trained as an OBGYN. And I'm not trained at all at informatics. So I always like to make that very clear when I'm in any conversation around data and informatics. That being said, I do have some training in health services research and public health. So I definitely speak public health and research to the extent that the data are presented in a way that someone with my informatics training can understand. And Michelle works for OCHIN. I work for Alliance Chicago. Thankfully, there's no acronym to have to translate. Alliance Chicago is like OCHIN. It's a group of of community health centers or federally qualified health centers across the country that come together around an an alliance as well as OCHIN. The way that we function is we provide support to those health centers, oftentimes centering on a health information technology platform that allow for research and quality improvement efforts to take place at a more centralized location where these health centers come together through our efforts. And I function as the director of research at Alliance Chicago. Given my background in OBGYN, I definitely have a focus and a passion for reproductive and Thank you. I see in the literature that 60% of maternal deaths are considered preventable and that mortality rates vary significantly amongst disparate populations. But it seems to me this must be the tip of the disparities iceberg, that the quality of maternal care, whether it's before, during, or after childbirth. Can you guys like summarize like what are the the big issues that are we should be aware of in maternal care that in maternal health that disparities play a role in so i was can i comment Please. yes I, I don't I, i'm deferring the floor to you on this one i when i read or, or when i think about that question what i did was i put healthcare disparities not maternal health so much but healthcare disparities into certain buckets And the buckets that I use are quality, access, and outcomes. And so if you think about maternal health in that kind of paradigm, if you think about quality, there are certain things that 
um, whether it is outpatient organizations or hospital systems can do to affect that. Okay. Mm -hmm. And within the hospital system, they put all these policies and procedures in place to try and manage how clinicians practice, one, to standardize it, and two, to improve quality. And so a big initiative within the OBGYN world was they recognized that delivering babies before 39 weeks, particularly by C-section, could be detrimental because you're looking at babies that are that even though they're considered term are early term and can have a impact on outcomes. And so from a hospital system standpoint, what they did was they said, okay, we're not going to let clinicians deliver babies electively before 39 weeks, whether that be by C-section or by induction, we're just not going to do that. And so it changed physician behavior about how they brought patients into the hospital. And quite frankly, it has had an impact. There are several studies that have been out that that has had an impact on morbidity uh, and mortality in babies, okay? So the real question becomes is, can you translate some of those things to the outpatient clinical setting, uh, which is where, you know, we work? Outpatient setting. It's also referred to as ambulatory care. That means in the doctor's office, in a clinic, as opposed to inpatient in the hospital. Different settings can have different ways of doing things and different electronic medical record systems. That makes it hard to find information across those settings and standardize how moms are cared for. In my quality improvement career, I always struggled to first ask clinicians to set standards, follow those standards, and then see if those standards made sense for everyone. If they made sense for some people and not others, then you adjust by individual conditions and preferences. Sometimes a system can mean a fragmented system, piecemeal, not standardized. Confused yet? What I would tell you is that that's a bit harder to do because you've got a lot of different clinics, okay, that have their own set of policies and procedures in place. And even as an organization who hosts an an EMR, there are certainly things that we can do and suggest to put in clinical decision-making tools to impact that. But that's a much tougher nut to crack on trying to standardize even across which host and can impact individual clinics, not so much the clinicians. Okay. So that's one sort of bucket that I personally put things in. If you think about disparities with regard to access, certainly with regard to uh, the patient population that we serve at Ocean, you're looking at federally uh, qualified health centers primarily, which tend to have patients of a lower socioeconomic place or status in life. And trying to get OB care into those places can be difficult. I live in the state of Indiana and they have state maps and you will have what I call OB deserts. You will have places that do not have providers that provide OB care in those. 
FQHCs help, but that's a broader issue because it has to do with how OBs work and how we need to be able to deliver babies and what is the logistical support that you can provide to those clinicians to be able to then put access in areas where you have a lower density of patients and and therefore it cares more spread out, physically spread out. And I sort of think of access like that. Now there's also there's other there certainly are, are other access problems. If patients live, whether that be they just can't physically get to the clinics. There's other types of access problems that have nothing to do with um, providers that kind of play into that. But that's certainly something that we look at. And then the third thing we look at is outcomes. Are there are there specific things that we can do in our clinics or suggest to, in our clinics that really look at, at outcomes? And certainly there are organizations um, I'm thinking about the state of California that have initiatives or groups that look at maternal health and look at quality issues and say, what is it that we should focus on? One of the things that I've recently become involved in is uh, looking at postpartum patients and the fact that those patients represent and can have sepsis or other postpartum complications. And then how does that transition of care? And then how do we get those patients back in? And then how can we affect outcomes in that regard? And so that's how I look at it, which is not, which is a broader question than are there certainly from just an OB standpoint, just maternal health standpoint, Mm -hmm. are there things that we can do that are known problems? There's postpartum hemorrhage. There's, there's lots of known medical problems that, that affects outcomes of both for the moms and for babies. Michelle gave, that is a hard act to follow. So yes, ma'am, Michelle definitely nailed that one. What I would highlight and maybe potentially add on is to say that I think what Michelle's talking about with the hospital systems is really important to underline here because a lot of the perinatal quality collaboratives, like what Michelle is talking about in California, we have one here in Illinois. There's a lot of successful models in that space for the hospital setting to bring about behavior change Michelle was talking about with the inductions at 39 weeks. Once again, let's note that Michelle and Lisa speak about systems in several ways. They could be referring to hospital systems, meaning a business arrangement between many hospitals and clinics locally or across regions governed in one hospital system. Or they could be talking about electronic medical record systems that hospitals and clinics use. System can also mean the way people do business, the processes they use to deliver and pay for care. So three different meanings of systems. We'll have to look out for those different meanings. The challenge that I think she highlighted is that we don't really have a system like that for the ambulatory care space where there are organizations really looking at how to improve quality at a systemic level, at an infrastructure level in the ambulatory care space. And that is something that I care very deeply about here in Illinois, and and I'm working with some local sites to try to address. 
but nationally that, and, and I will say that some of the perinatal quality collaboratives are looking at outpatient metrics, but it's challenging because so much of what they're doing is rooted in the hospital and that's where they have access to the data. So where things become really challenging is the ambulatory care space and the data and the connection, like the episodes of care, what Michelle was talking about, connecting the patient between the, the acute and the outpatient setting, as well as their data. And so that's part of the limitation of why I think there hasn't been a lot of activity happening in the outpatient space. So I just wanted to highlight that. And then a second thing that I wanted to say, and I say this as a woman not of color and a woman who's deeply invested in patients of color, is that there is an emerging understanding that we need to do better as providers to listen to our patients and to hear our patients and to ensure that when someone brings something to us, we check our biases because we know that we have biases. And I think this is an evolving conversation and we're getting a, we're starting to, I think, measure how that impacts care. But from a data perspective specifically, it's also really challenging to measure that. And so what matters is for providers, for all of us to really recognize that, reconcile that, and think about how we bring that to our daily practice and how we can all do better. Oh my goodness, that's a lot. What I'm familiar with is the challenge of boundaries, that there's different settings. Our systems are really bad across boundaries. It makes me crazy that half the population can be mothers. <laughs> this is like life. This is no mystery that this is something that should have attention. Now, I know when I was a quality management leader, I would say to my staff, when you hear the word should, that's like a red flag, like nothing should. But it's not like this is a mystery. How is it that Oh, I know how it is. I got to ask a different question. It just seems like su systemic sexism, that this is not an area that gets way more attention, that we're in 2021 and we're having this conversation is nuts. Let me say, so if you think about, because one of the things that we're focusing on at Ocean, and I think in obstetrics in general, the care model has changed. So if you think about patients and if you think about boundaries and you think about how transitions of care occur within the obstetrical space, how providers care for a patient is a team. A lot of times it's a team setting. There's multiple providers who, who provide care. And so there are a lot of transitions of care for women, whether it be who provides their outpatient care, if they have complications, then how every OB patient goes to the hospital, which is, I don't want to say unique, but it's different from the standpoint, you can have a primary care patient that you can care for. They might, they might need some inpatient care. They might, but every single OB patient, home births aside, go to the hospital to deliver their babies. And so there's another transition of care and their outpatient provider may or may not be their inpatient provider. And then when they're cared for in the hospital, then their inpatient provider may or may not be their outpatient provider again. So there are a lot of transitions of care 
that are wrapped up in OB care and even how we as clinicians care for those patients have changed from the time that I went through residency and care for patients to now. You've had that transition where it used to be you'd have that country doctor who took care of that patient and who delivered that patient. And so it was always the same doctor. And then it was a more team model where in the outpatient setting, you would have a group of doctors who the patients rotated through, but still that group of doctors cared for that patient inpatient. So it was the same group, at least, of doctors. That has even changed because now it could be a group of doctors who work as them as an outpatient. And then there's an OB hospitalist who now cares for that patient as an inpatient who then transfers that patient back out. So there's lots of transitions of care for which there's no system in place to even, whether it be from a data perspective or from a clinician perspective, to have those transitions go smoothly. And quite frankly, a lot of patients don't understand that. They don't understand that their medical records in the ambulatory setting may or may not be able to get to that hospital, depending on what their inpatient you know system is being used, and that those records in that inpatient setting then can be, you know, transferred back to the outpatient setting. Nowadays, people walk around with smartphones and they expect everything just to go. And it doesn't work that way at all. So I think from the standpoint of maternal health and from the standpoint of OB care, because so much has changed about how patients are cared for, it has just made it very complicated to be able to move from those settings just because the integration just does not exist. It's interesting to me that home births and midwifery have not been part of this conversation with Michelle and Lisa. Full disclosure, more than 40 years ago, my wife and I, back to the land hippies, with a strong family history of midwifery, were part of the home birth movement. At that time, in the mid and late 70s, we perceived the hospital maternal health system is unsafe and lacking compassion for low-risk pregnancies. Our family history opened us to taking control with alternatives such as home births with midwives. Now I wonder about the impact of midwifery on maternal and child mortality and morbidity. that. And I would say that when I'm sometimes talking to other stakeholders in the public health space, I hear, we know that this issue of documentation and transition and all of what Michelle's talking about, and we mentioned between different inpatient teams, back to the outpatient, from outpatient to inpatient, this is not unique to maternal health by any means. And so I think the question also becomes, If we're all operating under the same system and we know that there are these challenges for every patient, be it a primary care patient who shows up with chest pain and and not being able to access their health record, why is it that you're saying, Danny, and that, and apologies from if you hear my daughter screaming in the background, I'm so sorry. Why is it that we do and we now are really getting a grasp on the fact that it seems that we haven't been really looking at maternal health specifically and why are we now looking at it? And I would say that I think there's many reasons why that could be and we could spend a long time talking about that. I definitely have ideas. I think that the good news is, is that 
there is heightened awareness. And so I, there are many more conversations happening at the local, city, state, federal policy level. And I think that there are policies that could be implicated in why we're seeing this, why maternal health has been overlooked. I would also say that because maternal death, thankfully, is very rare, I do think that it has taken this cumulative effect of time to bring it to the forefront as well. And it represents something larger than itself, right? Because thankfully, there's really not a lot of incident maternal deaths. And for that, we should be grateful. But when you start to peel the onion of those deaths and you look backwards, that's where the story starts to become more telling. And like I said, I'm grateful that we're having the conversation. I have hypotheses for why this might be happening. And I think we can now start to really be excited that there is support and federal leadership and state and local leadership to try to rectify the situation. So share a hypothesis. One thing that I'll share, and I'd be curious on Michelle's thought, is that I think that When we look at, for example, I think a lot of what Michelle was saying around what drives culture change and clinical change comes from regulations at whatever level you want it to be. Plus, you also have issues with compensation, right? And so I think those are the two levers that you can look at in many different arenas. And what are the regulations in place? What is the oversight in place? And then what are the the financial incentives by which we might change clinical culture to prioritize maternal health? And I think that would be where I would start and leave it broad like that. I don't know, Michelle, if you have any other thoughts on that. So I'm going to I'm going to take it in a slightly different bend. I think first of all, I think what you say is absolutely true. I, I echo that. The other thing bringing back something that you brought up earlier with regard to our biases as clinicians. So I'm going to give a local example. In Muncie, Indiana, they they talk about the railroad tracks and they talk about how most of the African-American patients or the African-American population is on one side of the railroad tracks and that the hospital sits on another. And where did those patients get care historically and what was the quality of the care that they got? And are those clinicians supported? There has been some data to say that amongst minority patients, if they have a minority doctor who cares for them, that they actually get better care. Now, the question to that is why? There's a lot of that's wrapped up in that why, because do I actually think that doctors are trying to provide poor care or anything like that? I think the answer to that is no. Okay. But I do think that if you think about where our hospital, our tertiary care centers sit, a lot of them in urban areas, but there are large institutions. I'm thinking of Hopkins and, you know, other large institutions that are primarily staffed by uh, majority clinicians that are taking care of a minority patient population because they're in urban areas. And I wonder how that ultimately ends up affecting the care of those patients. I don't have a good answer. I know anecdotally for myself, my parents, my friends, that kind of thing. But I don't know if you were to look at that as a more systems approach, what that data would show. So that thinking. that leads me to I'm very involved in research. I'm on the you know board of governors of PCORI. Mm-hmm. But I wonder sometimes what research does for us. I was just on a conversation with Julia, who introduced me to you two, and we were talking about how measurement drives change. So whether it's system change or behavior, how does that happen? 
And I asked the same question about research. Like, so now there's like all this effort to do research about disparities. And the Academy of Medicine, they're having a conference right now. And I've been dropping in every once in a while, listen to that. And I hear about measuring disparities. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, we know there are disparities. How does this information, how does this research, how does it inform, motivate action, change? Can you talk about that? Yeah, I'll, I'll take a stab at that. I agree with you. We know. I think there are certain things we don't know about. I don't know that we necessarily need to do a lot more research to uncover disparities. I think we need to keep that data transparent and ongoing so that we can follow it. And I would also say where there is still, I think, areas of research to better understand is what Michelle was saying with the why. Why is it that the papers that Michelle was talking about found what they found and to try to understand how we can measure better the experience of patient when they're in the settings of the inpatient or the outpatient setting. So I think that's certainly an area of research that can enhance our understanding of disparities. Where I would also say is prospectively moving forward where I believe we need to move is really using research to answer how do we mitigate the disparities. What are the interventions that we need? What are the effective interventions? And that's where the data and the the research and well-conducted research can help us understand what, what we can do again to address it. So I, I agree. I think maybe less effort in in identifying disparities with the caveat of understanding why. And then two, moving forward, effective research around what makes the change, what are the levers to push, what are the measurements that need to be done that help us to make change? I I completely agree with you because I think that one of the struggles that we're having now is that we've got this information and we don't know what to do with it. Like we can't figure out what is it that we need to change? What is a solution to some identified problem that we have? I think all the low-hanging fruit is gone. If you think about that, we had with Epic. Epic is an electronic medical record system. We had this discussion about renal function and do we need to change? There's a measurement for African-Americans versus everybody else. Do we really need that? You know, that's low hanging fruit. You can say yes or no or whatever. You can change it in the HR. That's, you know, it was there. They found that it's easy. Okay. But changing the, you know, patient patterns or changing physician patterns, if you identify some disparity, but changing those and seeing what actually works, that's much harder. If you think about what we're doing with NAC, and National something, Association so of Community, community Health, Health Centers, Center. there you Which go. Which is how Michelle and I met. Okay. Yes. So we're doing this, these studies to say, what is the patient experience with regard to their contraceptive care? What is that? And so we're doing these surveys about that. We'll get that data back. I don't know if that's going to be helpful or not. We can see and we can make some adjustments for that. If pe- the patient experience that they're they're having a poor patient experience. What can we do to change it? And is that going to actually affect the rate of adoption of people with regard to their contraceptives? I don't know, mm-hmm. but we're at that point now because we don't know the answer. We're at that point of trying different things to see if it's actually going to impact some of the disparities that we find. And and it's hard when you're asking organizations to put in dollars, time, energy, effort, and dollars in in an outcome that you're not at all convinced or sure that it's going to make a a change, a difference, Mm. I should say. I think that's hard. 
Could I add one more thing yeah, as well? Please. That I think part of the solution also is a lot of it does have to be hyper-local, right? And so I think that one of the gold standards of research is generalizability and that you want to try to, to measure something and bring something forward that can be applied on and scaled up across multiple communities. And I think that we have to take a step back from that sometimes and we have to think about what's going to work here and measure whether it works here. And most importantly, who's at the table in thinking through these research questions and what might work in a given location. And so it's essential to include clinicians who are working on the front lines in the communities that we're trying to support. And it's equally as important to include the patients, people with lived experience and community stakeholders to really help identify to Michelle's point, what do we actually think will make a difference? And then let's test that and build something around that. I think that's another sort of prong mm -hmm. of what might be missing in some of the research that we're doing. And I know that, as you said, you sit with PCORI, they're working very hard to emphasize and prioritize those activities. <laughs> Now a word about our sponsor, Abridge. Use Abridge to record your doctor visit. Push the big pink button and record the conversation. Read the transcript or listen to clips when you get home. Check out the app at abridge.com. A-B-R-I-D-G-E.com. Or download it on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Record your healthcare conversations. Let me know how it went. So, circle back a little bit to the informatics. So, we're talking about the 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 exchange of information across settings, across time, across providers, and the challenges of that. But do we even collect as a normal part of our operation of caring for people information that can be used to study? the things that you're talking about? Or is it always that there has to be a special study because that routinely the kind of information that people need to understand hyperlocal isn't like collected routinely? I, I'm not sure that made sense, but... It does. I, what we found is that it's supposed to be. <laughs> In this sense, within the EHR, there is there are multiple ways that you can scan a CAD. There's multiple ways that you can do something within the EHR. The data should be collected, but because we don't put what are called hard stops, we don't require every single field, every single this, every single that to be filled out. What we found, even with regard to the, the project that we're on now, is that there's holes in it. There's spaces, but those holes should be filled. And if the clinician went through and they did every single thing, that data would be there. But we have definitely found that that is not the common workflow and that there's a lot of holes in our data. And so certainly within uh, the projects that we're working on, having found that, we're 
now going back and saying, what can we do in our EHR? Because this is important data. We really don't want that hole to be there. XYZ can be left out, but this, this piece of information is really important. We want to know, did the patient get, you know, a postpartum contraceptive uh, medication? Did they get it? And so we're trying to put in stops. We're trying to make it so that Mm -hmm. it's harder to leave that information out. Yes, what we found is that there's definitely holes in our data. And Lisa, you can speak to... What I'll say is yes, a very strong yes to what Michelle said. And I would say that I've learned over the course of this project, working with Michelle about the USCDI, which is the United States Core Data for Interoperability. And what I've learned is that there's very little standardization across data sets and electronic health records related to maternal health. Want to say hi? Hello. She's just picking up a coloring picture. So anyway, so the United States Core Data for Interoperability Standards, as I understand it, to establish interoperability across disparate electronic health records and disparate systems has not traditionally had a lot of guiding information for maternal and reproductive health data, such that it has allowed for these holes to emerge across electronic health records with different health record companies having different holes to plug. And I think we know that the American College of OBGYNs are working with and have made recommendations to improve this. And Michelle and I both, through our collective work with NAC, are also trying to, within our own systems, try to address the holes that we've identified. Yeah, to echo what Lisa said, not having that national standard is really problematic for reproductive health. And they've done it for some other specialties. They just haven't done it for OBGYN. Okay, so I'm going to go to this, this issue of participation. So if people are listening or reading and they're wanting to participate in either the design, the operations, the dissemination, the recruitment, whatever of this research, where would they go? Like how would people participate? Where do you go looking for people to sit at the table? That's a really good question. I would say that a lot of the movement towards this has come more from the research side, actually trying to find people to participate rather than the flip. Mm-hmm. And I'm hopeful that as Michelle has talked about the change in how we provide obstetric care that's happened over the last several years, that we'll also see a change in how we conduct research such that in the years to come, it will become more commonplace for community-based individuals to say, I want to get engaged in research and understand the pathway to do that. I think there's a lot of efforts underway in many jurisdictions to try to establish how that the infrastructure for something like that. And I think that, again, thanks in, in large part to PCORI and other funders, it is becoming more and more commonplace in research to really include meaningful participation and partnership with people outside of the research team that are formally trained. So, oh, go ahead. Do you want to say, Michelle? I'm going to take just a a slightly different tack. First of all, I completely agree with Lisa. The one thing I will say that is at least unique, maybe it isn't unique. Somebody would have to tell me that. But in the FQHC world, their board requires 
that they have people from their community and at least have an engaged board at a clinical level. No matter what you're going to have, I don't know if it's 50%, there's a certain percentage of those people who have to be, you know, from the community. If you have that, that might be an interesting or at least Mm -hmm. an avenue to make sure that you had some stakeholders that are not physicians or within more the corporate structure, but have the people from the community, because that's an opportunity to go to an executive leadership team to say that we want to do some research to be in front of people who have some decision-making power to then push that out to community members. So I have two really different sort of ending questions and deal with it however you like. Uh, From what we've talked about, are there a couple things that are really critical? And are there really critical things that we haven't talked about in this discussion? It's a really good question. I would say the first one is this plugging of the holes and things that are happening and the NAC and the Centers for Disease Control and ACOG. ACOG is the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology are working on to try to promote more of consistent documentation and data elements across electronic health records so we can develop metrics that we can actually use consistently and across systems to better measure and better understand impact for any of the things we discussed earlier. So I would say first, I'm glad to see that there's effort happening with respect to measurement and data. I'll pass it to Michelle to see if she wants to add anything while I think about something maybe we haven't talked about. Okay. So if I had a lot of money and I was going to do something a little bit different within the communities, we have HIEs, some of which are good. HIE, Health Information Exchange. Right. In Indiana, at the state level, we have a very active one that works really well. Not all states. I'm just- okay. And I know that they, I mean... The High Tech Act, they gave dollars to people to try and get these HIE throughout the states to get them more robust. And I don't think it worked out so well (laughs) in a lot of states because they just couldn't figure out a, a, a model for sustainability. But that was at the level of the hospitals, essentially. Information exchange was at the hospital level. I think an interesting thing might be to try and get that at the community levels for in an outpatient setting. And I understand that we have we have care everywhere. You can push data from your outpatient EHR. But I was having a discussion with one of our member sites and she was talking about, she works in an urban area and they do have quite a, a lot of patient movement because patients move or they're just not as stable in a locale that they might start out at one clinic and they go to another clinic or they might end up getting care at two or three different clinics. And because of the way the data is exchanged, it's very hard. And even to do some analysis, they were talking about, could we dump it into Tableau? Could we dump it into some other data structure so that as a community, we could better look at our outpatient data to do some analysis? So I think if I had money to try and plow into a project, it might be interesting to see what it would look like if you could get the desperate systems, if you could get Alliance Chicago and Ocean to be able to really exchange data within local, like you were talking about, to look at local problems, to look at, to really then plow into that 
outpatient data and then try and come up with, after looking at it, coming up with some solutions. And so if there was something that I would do, I think that would be. I concur and would say that I think using electronic health records to produce local data is critical and representative. So not missing pockets of patients that might be going somewhere that don't have their data contributed because that's equally important. The other piece that I think is also really important that I learned when I was working in the public health sector is that outside of, it's not just an ambulatory acute care issue. It's also a community-based issue. And we have so many wonderfully intentioned programs that are happening in the community that touch the patients we serve that are disseminating health-based information or health education or what have you, providing case management, support to families. I could tick off 10 of them if I wanted to. And those systems also are not interacting with the healthcare provider. So the healthcare provider may not actually be aware of what, what supports the patient is receiving in the community and the fidelity by which they're receiving that. And there's no interaction between the healthcare provider and the support or uh, the social support organization. And so I think to make this comprehensive and patient-centered, we have to be as inclusive as possible as we build this dream data system so that anyone who's interacting with the patient on behalf of his or her, that all the people who might have a hand at play are able to see and understand that. So we really do break down the silos and fragmentation that I think is also really at play here and could be really harnessed to do great good the patients that we care about. If I had all the money in the world, I would say that the the information should follow the patient, not the institution, not the setting, because I have MS and I'm the one that's the connector. Oh, absolutely. And, and the idea that it's going to be institutions that are going to take care of putting all my data together, I've lost hope. Even with all the providers I have who care and do a lot of work to share information, I am still the main sharer, but I'm not the normal patient. I think what you're saying is correct. I think if we want to move towards true patient-centered health exchange, we have to be able to exchange the information with everyone and patients need to be at the center so patients can understand who's doing what, where the data are. In a, in a way that's not overwhelming also. And I think right now across both provider to provider, community to patient, patient to provider, like all of those are unfortunately not working at their highest efficiency. And so I think that your idea combined with mine and Michelle, we, we got it. Let's make it happen. Well, you know, it's funny because they always come out, whether it was Google or Microsoft, people came out with these patient-centered, how can we get it down to your smartphone kind of thing. And I think it's that it's still, it's always that interoperability piece. There's no way, there's just no good way to merge and manage that data at this point. Thank you very much. I really appreciate this. Michelle, I'm so glad you were able to join. Oh, well, thank you. No, I'm just glad that I got invited. I think it was interesting and it was a good, I think we were, I think we did good. You did good. You, you, uh, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Danny, best of luck with all of this. I I think it's amazing that you're doing it. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. I completely agree. Take care. Bye. Bye, everybody.
Maternal health delivery suffers from systemic sexism and racism. If women of any color, religion, and gender identity control 50% of the levers of power, money, business, funding, policy, I can't imagine that our maternal and obstetrics health systems would be so fragmented, hospital-centric, and unresponsive to the needs and preferences of women. I know, I'm a two-legged, cisgender old white man of privilege who watched maternal care in the 1970s and 80s and now in 2021. We may have stepped backwards, not forwards, since the 70s with the businessification of maternal medical care. But unfortunately, we will not solve the injustices of capitalism, paternalism, here and now. Oddly, I can't find any resources that lay out the business model of equitable maternal health. If you know of something, let us know, please. I do appreciate the hope and optimism of Drs. Michelle Witt and Lisa Massenter. We need an endless supply of hope and optimism. I celebrate that they're in the trenches advocating for our pregnant, delivering, and post-delivery moms and partners. My crystal ball is as opaque as ever. I can't see how the necessary power dynamics can change without women at the helm. I agree with them that patients and caregivers with systems and communication skill need to sit at the tables of healthcare governance, operations, design, and research. We need medical records with a minimum of standardized maternal health care data from inpatient, outpatient, and the community within a framework of interoperability that follows people, not institutions or clinicians. We really need to roll up all those settings of care and service, inpatient, outpatient, and community. Phew, it's a lot to ask. If we don't ask, who will? I've included some more resources in the show notes and below. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Drs. Witt and Massenter for joining us. Onward. to Kayla Nelson, web and social media coach, and Joey Van Leeuwen, musician and arranger. See the show notes, previous podcasts, and other resources through my website, www.health-hats.com. Please subscribe and contribute. If you like it, share it. Thanks. See you around the block.